please help me welcome Irene Hirano Inoue. Good evening, and Jennifer, thank you for that wonderful um, introduction. It's great to be back home. I can still consider this my home, and it's wonderful to have the uh, Japanese American National Museum CEO as well as some of the board here. Um, this space and the uh, Democracy Center was something, actually, that Danny Noe, as um, a senior senator from Hawaii, but who represented the country so ably, really wanted to make happen. And so he was very much a part of creating this space that um, helped to expand the work of the Japanese American National Museum to, in, to really do these types of programs, to create a dialogue and to bring people together to talk about ideas and to talk about how to take those ideas into action. So as Jennifer said, I um, have uh, the opportunity to share just three short excerpts from the keynote address that he gave at the 1968 a Democratic Convention. If you will recall, the country was um, in turmoil uh, because of the Vietnam War. There were protests, there were thousands of people protesting outside the convention, and it was a time in our country when we were very much divided. Um, and so these were his words. My fellow Americans, this is my country. Many of us have fought hard for the right to say that. Many are now struggling today from Harlem to Da Nang so that we may say this with conviction. This is our country. And we are engaged in a time of great testing. Whether this nation or any nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to opportunity for all citizens can not only endure but continue to progress. The issue before us in such a time is how shall we discharge, how shall we honor our citizenship? The keynote address at a national political convention traditionally calls for a rousing oratory. I hope to be excused from this tradition this evening, for I do not view this occasion as one for flamboyance or levity. I believe the real reason we are here is that there is a word called commitment. Because we are committed for the future of our country and all our people, and because for that future, hope and faith are more needed now than pride in our party's past. For even as we emerge from an era of unsurpassed social and economic progress, our Americans are clearly in no mood for counting either their blessings or their bank accounts. We are still embarked on the longest unbroken journey of economic growth and prosperity in our history. Yet we are torn by dissension and a disrespect for our institutions and leaders as is rife across the land. Second excerpt. The true dimension of the challenge facing us is a loss of faith. I do not mean simply a loss of religious faith, although this erosion is a major contributor to our unease. I mean a loss of faith in our country, in its purposes, and in its institutions. I mean a retreat from the responsibilities of citizenship. 
The plain fact is that in the face of complexity and frustration, too many Americans have drifted into the use of power purely for destructive purposes. Too many Americans have come to believe it is their right to decide as individuals which of our laws they will obey and which they will violate. I do not mean to say that all our laws are just. They are not. And I don't mean to suggest that protest against unjust laws is not proper. Performed in an orderly manner, the right to protest is a cornerstone of our system. Men must have the opportunity to be heard, even when their views are extreme and in a lesser a democratic country, they would be dangerous. I, too, have spoken against laws which I considered wrong and unjust, and I am sure I will speak and vote against many, many more. But my fellow Americans, I have not burned my birth certificate, and I will not renounce my citizenship. Those who do such things are relatively few, but here, but there is a much larger number who, in the face of change and disorder, have retreated into disengagement and quiet despair. Less destructively, but no less surely, such men are also retreating from the responsibilities of citizenship. Now, let us not deceive ourselves about the consequences of such abdication. It is anarchy. It is a state in which every individual demands instant compliance with his own desires. And from there, it is but a short step to the assumption by each individual of the right to decide which of his neighbors shall live and which shall not, and so, and so accelerate the sickening spiral of violence which has already cost us our beloved John F. Kennedy, our great leader Martin Luther King Jr., and the voice of this decade, Senator Robert F. Kennedy. We have been told that the revolts are against the system and that the establishment must be torn down. But my fellow Americans, in Paris recently, students cut down 100-year-old trees to erect temporary street barricades. Those trees have lived through two world wars. Some of them even survived the revolution of 1848. Were the goals of these students served by the destruction of those trees? How long will it take for their beauty and the vitality that they symbolized to grow again? What trees do the students plant in their place? If we cut down our institutions, public and private, and with indifference starve the systems which have given us our achievements, who will feed the hungry? Who will train the unskilled? Who will supply the jobs that mean opportunity for the generation whose voices are not yet heard? And who will launch the much-needed Marshall Plan to rebuild our cities and open opportunity for all Americans? These undertakings are too great for individuals going their separate ways. Finally, my fellow Americans, let us remember that even anarchy is only a one-way station. 
Man, the social animal, has always craved order. He has made the most essential function of his government the maintenance of some order. Chaos and anarchy have never been more than preludes to, to have never been more than preludes to to, to um, totalitarianism. Tyrants like Adolf Hitler have taught this before. So, my fellow Americans, let us reject violence as a means of protest, and let us reject those who preach violence. But let us not tempt those who would hide the evil face of racism behind the mask of law and order. And the third excerpt. Fellow Americans, this is our country. Its future is what we, its citizens, will make it. And as we all know, we have much to do. Putting aside hatred on the one hand and a timidity on the other, let us grow fresh faith in our purpose and new vigor in our citizenship. Let us welcome the ideas and energies of the young and the talents and participation of all responsible people. Let us plant trees and grow new opportunity. And my fellow Americans, let us build not only new buildings, but new neighborhoods. And then let us all live in them as full citizens and all as brothers and sisters. In closing, I wish to share with you a most sacred word of my state of Hawaii. It is aloha. To some of you who have visited us, it may have meant hello. To others, aloha may have meant goodbye. But to those of us who have been privileged to live in Hawaii, aloha means I love you. So to all of you, my fellow Americans, aloha. Thank you. And I'd like to jump in and just uh, first say aloha to all of you in all senses of the word and introduce our panelists. Uh, sitting to the right of me is Mitchell Maki. He is the president and CEO of the Go For Broke National Education Center. He is also the lead author of Achieving the Impossible Dream, How Japanese Americans Have Trained Redress, a case study of the passage of the 1988 Civil Liberties Act, which celebrates an anniversary next week. Next Friday. And next to Mitchell, we have Martha Jones. She is a legal and cultural historian at Johns Hopkins University. Before Johns Hopkins, she served as a founding director of the Michigan Law School program in race, law, and history, and author, for the purpose of this discussion, very relevant, of the brand new book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. And next to her, Garrett Epps, constitutional law scholar at the University of Baltimore School of Law. He is a contributing editor for The Atlantic. He serves as the magazine's Supreme Court correspondent and also applicable for this discussion. He's author of the book Democracy Reborn, the 14th Amendment, and the Fight for Equal Rights in Post-Civil War America. And finally, Ali Nurani is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum, also author of There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American immigration. So distinguished panel indeed. I wanted to start by reading the section of the 14th Amendment, just two sentences, but the relevant section that we're going to be talking about so we know exactly what we're talking about, what we're thinking about, and think about the exact words that were chosen. 
all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state de deprive any person, and that's a key word, person, of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Martha, <laughs> the 14th Amendment uh, basically guarantees the right of citizenship to everyone born in the United States. This is the birthright citizenship idea. Did this essentially put to rest the idea, because this was ratified in 1868, a few years after the Civil War, put to rest the idea that slaves were not citizens? Yes, um, it's an important um, moment because slavery has been abolished in 1865 by the 13th Amendment, but there's still an open question about who former slaves will be with respect to the nation. It's an old debate in the United States. There are some uh, half million former slaves already before emancipation in the US. Um, and so the 14th Amendment takes us to one answer to that question, which is that yes, now former slaves are gonna be citizens of the United States. And Garrett, you are a scholar of this 14th Amendment, the history thereof. And I'm wondering, how close it came to it not being ratified, not becoming another amendment? The answer is incredibly close. We, we just through, went through the 150th anniversary of, of the 14th Amendment being uh, added to the Constitution. And even today, uh, the scholars who were commemorating it commemorated it on three different dates because no one can agree exactly <laughs> what date it was uh, added to the Constitution that was uh, contested at the time. Um, I grew up in a place and time where my teachers told me the 14th Amendment had never actually been validly adopted. So uh, all, all of this is, is you know, highly uh, contested today. And um, the, the struggle to get that amendment, the desperate struggle to get that amendment passed uh, by June of 1866 is one of the most suspenseful uh, stories in American history and has a lot of parallels to the time we're living in now because the president of the United States at that time, uh, Andrew Johnson, was a person of very pronounced and public racist uh, sentiments. He was not in sympathy particularly with his party uh, and um, he was uh, of a psychological eccentricity, uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and his view was that the Constitution didn't need any change, that, that black people should return, they wouldn't be slaves anymore, but they'd be subordinate. The old white people, old white masters should run the South and that Johnson would be at their head and, and maintain control. And Washington, during this period of time, was filled with rumors that Johnson was going to bring the army in to the city and dismiss Congress and rule uh, by fiat. And so the, the leaders of the Republican Congress knew they had only one or two votes to spare and they had very short time until June to change the Constitution in such a way that the South would not come back into the Union more powerful than it had left. Uh, and then uh, Johnson came out, he blasted the amendment. It was thought that he would actually try to prevent it from being sent to the states for ratification. 
Uh, ratification was a, a brutal battle. Um, and the election of 1866 uh, was considered, you know, in words that we can all understand, the most important midterm election of our lives. <laughs> The issue was, shall we change the Constitution to protect citizenship and equal rights and equal protection of all Americans? Uh, Johnson campaigned very hard against it, and he lost. Uh, and after that, you know, it was just a question of, of uh, filling in the rest. But it was a very, very close thing. Hmm. And you have said that this is the most important amendment. Yes, because it basically makes the rest of the Constitution applicable to everybody. Yeah, it remodels the Constitution. There's an old saying, philosophers have an old saying that, that uh, from Alfred North Whitehead, that all of Western philosophy is footnotes to Plato. And uh, 20th century uh, uh, constitutional law scholars say the same thing, that most of our constitutional law in the 20th century was footnotes to the 14th Amendment. What does equal protection mean? What is due process? Does the Bill of Rights apply to the states? How can the states run their districting systems? All of these things were changed by the 14th Amendment and I think were meant to be changed because the idea behind the 14th Amendment was we are not going to allow, we the people, are not going to allow states like South Carolina and Georgia, states with slavery, states with unjust uh, social systems. We're not going to allow them to maintain undemocratic systems and use their power to control the federal government, which is what the South had done since, since the ratification of the Constitution. And yet, in a way, you could argue it gave the South more power because it guaranteed birthright citizenship to slaves and then that would give them more of a say in the South, but then that did not come to pass until the next amendment, the 15th. Well, you have to understand that um, the 13th Amendment had meant that slaves were no longer slaves, and they were now what was called in the old Constitution, other persons, which meant that the South would get representation in the House of Representatives and in the Electoral College for all the freed slaves. Remember, we had the three-fifths clause that said it, that they got representation for three-fifths. As soon as the 13th Amendment was passed, they got representation for five-fifths. So the South that was coming back into the Union, that was not allowing blacks to vote or possess any basic civil rights, the South was going to be literally 40% more powerful politically than it had been before the Civil War. So the 14th Amendment tries to uh, deal with this in two ways. And, you know, it, its success to some extent is problematic. But one was they said you cannot maintain these oppressive dictatorial societies because in the, in the antebellum South, there was no freedom of speech, the press was censored, there was no freedom of assembly, there weren't really free elections, um, and uh, obviously black people were not allowed to, to have any political rights. So you're going to have to run an internally democratic system. The Bill of Rights is going to apply against uh, state governments. And the second part of the 14th Amendment, which was never actually put into place, said that if you still insist on denying the vote to people of African descent, then you are going to lose those electoral votes, you are going to lose those House seats, and you will not have that power. Now, as it happened, uh, after 
1868, the Republicans became so powerful they passed the 15th Amendment, which said that you couldn't abridge the right to vote by race anyway. And so that second section of the 14th Amendment never got applied. But it was designed, very and, and fairly carefully designed, to attack the very problem you're talking about, of the South having too much power. Mm. Just to, just to yeah. jump in, though, because I think that um, it's also a moment where um, we wrestle with what do we mean when we say the South now, mm -hmm. right? Is yeah. the South um, the white South, the planter-dominated mm -hmm. South, the South of the pre-Civil War period? Or in fact, now when we say the, ha the South, do we also have to account for the black Americans who are now citizens? Okay, let's fast forward a little bit to the south of today and yes. the southern border of the United States and talk a little bit about this this language in the 14th Amendment, Ali. Uh, it says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process, nor deny to any person with its, within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Is it your interpretation that that applies to immigrants, undocumented or documented, who step foot in this country? Well, I mean, as, I was, as I've been thinking about the 14th Amendment, um, you know, I think that the amendment uh, kind of created, made, made it clear that all Americans are human beings and all people who are within our borders are human beings, more importantly. Um, and I think what we're seeing now in the, in the context of the current immigration debate uh, through policy or rhetoric is really a dehumanization of the immigrant. Um, and that then opens up the door for the separations, uh, for the types of things that will, the, the words that will come from this administration, whether it's the president or the attorney general. So in that way, the importance of the 14th Amendment becomes all the more clear. Um, and when you look at uh, uh, the immigration system, there is a parallel sense of, of justice for the immigrant versus the legal permanent resident or the U.S. citizen. So, you know, we're talking about this in the back, that there's almost kind of gradations of access to due process, depending on who you are, where you were born, how you came to the U.S., and what your status is. So um, there's a lot of kind of wrinkles to the legal conversation, but the clarity of the 14th Amendment when it pertains to the person um, and how that person is living within our border, I think is more clear than ever, and I think it's more important than ever. And Mitchell, when it came to the Korematsu decision, which basically said, yeah, you can uh, intern Japanese Americans, imprison Japanese Americans, um, that idea of due process, as we see, was, uh, well, interpreted in a different way. That's correct. And before I begin, I'd like to, first of all, thank Zokolo Public Square, the Daniel K. Noe Institute, and the Japanese American National Museum for pulling the four of us together to have this very timely uh, discussion. You're correct. In 1944, the Supreme Court weighed in on the case of Fred Korematsu. And Fred Korematsu, uh, in that case, the court ruled on the constitutionality of the exclusion order and the curfew. And based on what they perceived to be military necessity, due process went out the window. Uh, equal protection under the law went out the window. But interestingly enough, 40 years later, uh, through a series of cases known as the Quorum Nobis cases, it was brought up that the government had willfully and knowingly withheld information from the FBI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and the Federal Communications Commission that Japanese Americans posed no threat. And it was through that uh, knowing and willingly keeping the information from the Supreme Court 
that the trial court convictions were overturned, mm -hmm. and this was in the 80s. But you're correct, Madeline, in the 40s, due process went out the window and equal protection under the law went out the window. So, Martha, this is a situation where the executive powers, uh, the courts ruled that executive power took precedence over due process, the due process and equal protection rights of the citizens. Are we seeing the same argument now with regards to the travel ban? My view would be that um, there really hasn't been a moment in UN, U.S. history when um, citizenship and the rights of citizens hasn't been a debate. Right? We can look back to the case of African Americans, former slaves in the 19th century. Um, we can look to the examples from the mid-20th century and today. And we might say it's, um, it's a feature of democracy, isn't it? Right? This, um, question, who's in, who's out, what rights extend to citizens, it, is, it runs through all of U.S. history. So yes, today's debates have their own particular contours, um, they have their own um, political and sort of policy implications, um, but I think part of what we're seeing today is an extension of um, one of democracy's really fraught dimensions, right, which is this question of citizenship, who's in and who's out, and what rights extend to them. Um, and in that sense, um, we shouldn't be surprised um, and we shouldn't be repelled, right, that we should um, take a hold of that challenge, um, see it as endemic to our political culture, um, see it as um, a yet another um, humanitarian crisis in our midst, um, and that's, I think, where we are, right, is unable quite to, to put our hands on that. And I mean, when, when we're talking about the travel ban, um, it's really interesting because in that ruling, in the court's, the court's ruling, they specifically said, to, you know, to paraphrase, Korematsu was the wrong decision. Um, but then, you know, from our perspective, they still used the pretext of national security to eliminate any sort of equal protection. And the interesting part about it is that, you know, uh, the February 2017 speech by the president to the joint session, he said, to paraphrase, uh, immigrants are more likely to commit uh, terrorists, be terrorists. Mm -hmm. Today, there was a letter released from the Department of Justice that admitted they have no such evidence. Uh, so, so similar to what Mitchell was yes, saying. That's exactly, exactly what exactly. happened in World War II. Yes. Exactly. Because for Japanese Americans during World War II, we were dehumanized, as, as you right. indicated earlier. There was no evidence of espionage, sabotage, or any uh, threats against the United States. And it was for those very reasons that the Justice Department felt that that was proof that Japanese Americans mm. couldn't be trusted. So right. it's that same twisted logic that exists today that existed 75 years ago. And that's the ago. amazing part about today when the Justice Department says, meh, we don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so Garrett, how often are national security concerns raised in the jurisprudence when it comes to justifying who's in and who's out? Uh, well, you know, it, if you look at the uh, immigration cases, immigration and national security really are one seamless whole in the way the court talks about the Constitution. And, and going back to cases like the Chinese exclusion cases uh, where the court in the late 19th century said, well, we have to regard immigration, you know, the entrance of hostile foreign nationals into the United States is an act of war, whether we call them immigrants or invading armies, right? So, you know, the idea was that, that sort of waves of, of people from Asia were going to land and, and sort of take Western America away from 
uh, from the United States. Um, and that same uh, language, which is called deference, uh, persists right up until and in the travel ban, uh, in, in which the court repeatedly says it is not our job to decide whether the national security demands X or Y. Mm -hmm. When the president says national security dem demands uh, X or Y, uh, we do not look behind that as long as it's a bona fide reason. And then uh, Justice Sotomayor, bless her heart, in, in her dis very powerful and angry dissent said, this is exactly the same issue as Korematsu. This is Korematsu too. And the Chief Justice says, oh really? You know, he's just kind of like, oh my God, not Korematsu again. <laughs> You're always on and on about that. We all know Korematsu was wrong. This is totally different. This is... Yeah a thing about hostile people uh, in the United States, and Korematsu was not that. And, and so, you know, even the pretense that Korematsu somehow has been overruled yeah. by uh, the travel ban case is really simply that, hmm. pretense. Korematsu, in the Korematsu case, uh, the court said, in Justice Black's opinion, well, if this had case had anything to do with racism or, or prejudice, of course we would turn it down, but it plainly doesn't. That's exactly the same thing that the court said in the travel ban case. If this case had anything to do with prejudice against Muslims, we would not tolerate it for a moment. Uh, so, you know, it is exactly what Martha said. This, this is a cyclical debate that goes on and on. There are no new tropes. It, a lot of it goes back to the period you wrote about, which is before the 14th Amendment, where instead of deportation, we have colonization. Let's send black people back to Africa. They don't really belong here. Uh, we just keep having to fight the same battles over and over, and I think that probably, you know, as you say, we should just get used to that idea. That's what we have to do. Can I jump in? Please. Because I, I think um, as I'm listening, I, I'm, I'm hearing something in that story of mm. former slaves, which is that um, in the era of slavery, as free African Americans are establishing mm. themselves, um, not as citizens, but as members of communities, um, they too are said to be a threat, mm -hmm. right? They are a threat to the institution of slavery, mm -hmm. either by their example, which might inspire enslaved people to right. rise up, or by their intervention, mm -hmm. where they might aid enslaved people. And so actually, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm persuaded, thank you, that this is part of um, the long story, right? These companion stories, right? On the one hand, um, the nation of immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, this um, eternal uh, villainization, yes. right, of the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these are two companion stories. Right. Yeah. And right now we are hearing a lot of talk of MS-13 as posing a big threat. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just people at the border uh, who may have malign intent and, and mm -hmm. are called, uh, you know, less than human mm -hmm. in the rhetoric. Uh, I want to talk about the other part of the 14th Amendment, the birthright citizenship part. Um, it, that, that part guarantees that everyone born in the United States is automatically a citizen. Right now, there is a, a debate over that. And uh, I'm wondering why there is a debate over that, because it seems pretty uh, forthright, uh, pretty obvious what <laughs> is, is in that part of the amendment. So how can it be open to interpretation? So the first thing to know is that, yes, for a long time we thought that the Supreme Court 
um, had settled the question of the plain meaning of that first clause in the 14th Amendment that establishes birthright citizen. A person born, naturalized in the United States, is a citizen of the United States. Um, there is a question in the 19th century, um, and it arises around the status of the children of Chinese immigrants, children born in the United States to parents who themselves cannot become citizens of the United States because of the Chinese Exclusion Acts. Um, but the Supreme Court settles that question at the end of the 19th century, um, looks at the case of Wong Kim Ark, um, a young man born in San Francisco who is refused re-entry into the United States, said not to be a citizen despite having been born here, and the court says no, the language is plain, um, and Wong Kim Ark is a citizen of the United States. I think for a long time we yeah. thought that had by and large settled the question, um, but these are always um, simultaneously law questions and political questions. And so today, the 14th Amendment and the, its birthright provision is being picked up, um, turned inside out, you might say distorted, um, for the purpose of, for example, now asking a question about whether the children of unauthorized immigrants to the United States are birthright citizens when they are born in the United States? Are they persons not subject to the jurisdiction um, of the United States, which is that exception mm -hmm. in the clause that you read? Um, so I would say um, these are legal questions that um, you know a, a fine constitutional law professor um, can certainly persuade us should be settled law, but we would be naive not to recognize that they are simultaneously political questions um, and that are being debated, um, whether it's on Twitter, where I spend a little bit of time, um, or on the op-ed page of the Washington right. Post, or in law reviews, that this is a live question, and Garrett is better positioned than I am to comment on this, but the changing character of a Supreme Court leaves us open to the possibility of um, new interpretations, even of questions that appear to us to be settled. I, you know, I, th I think that's right. I, I, I have to say, uh, speaking on behalf of the legal profession, uh, regrettably, uh, um, <laughs> that, that this controversy about the birthright citizenship clause is one of the examples of the sheer genius of American law, because there's a lot of parts of the Constitution that really aren't self-explicating. They're not entirely clear. What does the Emoluments Clause mean? We, we, we don't really have a lot of uh, authority about that. What does the Direct Taxes Clause mean? I mean, within two years of the adoption of the Constitution, James Madison was saying, well, none of us knew what that meant. We just put it in hmm. there. Um, <laughs> but one of the few parts of the Constitution where the, the framers have actually tried to write a kind of modern, clear type constitution. So all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction, which is not a complicated term, are citizens of the United States. That is one of the clearest sentences in the entire constitution, but you know, lawyers and, and people with, with policy views have managed now to create the idea that this is some kind of secret coded language. Now, I always call this Da Vinci Code constitutionalism. <laughs> Doesn't really mean what it says. Yeah, I know it seems to say that, but it really means something else. And it is simply because, as people who read Martha's book will see, the idea of citizenship, the idea that you belong by right 
not by tolerance, not by the suffrage of, of the powerful or the majority, is a, an idea that, that Americans continue and probably will always continue to fight over. There are people in this country who find that idea profoundly threatening. Uh, and uh, I regret to say a lot of the challenge to the birthright citizenship clause, which is a very ominous challenge, uh, arose out of, it comes out of, you know, the, the sort of the remnants of the California Republican Party. Remember the party mm -hmm. of Pete Wilson, mm -hmm. the party of Prop 187. Um, mm -hmm. these, these people are still there, and the, the intellectual work that goes into this challenge is being done here in Southern California. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, as Martha says, we're in a period what? of very, very rapid constitutional change. We don't know what's going to happen. And everything is on the table, including that. But what is the argument that they're using? Are they saying that because it says subject to the jurisdiction, that they're not subject to the jurisdiction because their parents come from a different jurisdiction? The, the argument is, <laughs> and, and you know, I don't want to, I, I honestly, uh, you know, somebody attacked me about, one of these people attacked me recently on Twitter, and I wrote back and said, talking to you would be like debating whether Joe the plumber has invented a cure for cancer. I, it's just not, <laughs> it's simply not worth discussing uh, because it, 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 is, it, is, it is so so patently wrong. But the idea is that subject, subject to the jurisdiction is a phrase that every lawyer understands, right? Uh, if I go, actually, I'll, I'll actually, I've never admitted this publicly before, but in 1971, I was here, not far from here, and uh, was crossing the street with my leather jacket and, and long hair, and the LAPD came by, and they pushed me up against the wall, roughed me up a little, and they gave me a ticket for uh, jaywalking. <laughs> a warrant. I was supposed to appear, and I, I beat it. I ran out on it. So I... I They're waiting outside, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there we got you. We, we got your back. There is a reason, there's a reason why I don't hang out in L.A. very much. <laughs> I, I expect, uh, you know, that, that to be... Um, uh, after me, but I was under the jurisdiction of the LAPD at that moment. There's a law in Los Angeles uh, that says you're not supposed to cross, you know, between lights. Okay, that, that's a valid law. I crossed, the cops come along, you know, hey buddy, get up against the wall. Um, I couldn't say to them, you know, I'm from Virginia, I'm not subject to your jurisdiction. <laughs> <laughs> that would not have gone well. And that's what subject to the jurisdiction means. You're in, you're, you're, you're there, you're subject. The, the only people who are not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States at present are people who are protected by diplomatic immunity. Ambassadors and their families who can't be arrested. If an ambassador does something really bad, he's made to leave the country and the government of the sending country has to compensate the U.S. They're, they it can't be arrested, they can't be tried. That's what it means. But this entirely new meaning has been constructed to say, well, what it really means is that they don't have any relation to any other country. And therefore, if your parents are citizens of another country, you're not really subject to the jurisdiction. And I wrote a little sketch in The Atlantic in which Sheriff Arpaio is patrolling the the, the uh, Maricopa County highways and he pulls over a car and the, the guy says, you know, Sheriff, I, I'm an illegal alien so I'm not subject to your jurisdiction. But 
And that's the argument that's being made. I, I don't see anything to, to support it, but, but it is there. But going back to what Martha said, is yeah. there, there's a, a legal argument here yeah. and there's a political no, argument. absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, um, what, the, what the opposition to immigrants and immigration are doing mm -hmm. are using this, the 14th Amendment and birthright citizenship mm -hmm as a very clear strategy to dehumanize immigrants. That's right. Whether it is the family seeking asylum, whether it is the person who immigrated here legally, et cetera, et cetera. And this has been going on for years right. um, in terms of the opposition to immigrants and immigration making this type of, uh, of argument. The challenge now is that they've got a bit of a megaphone, yeah. right? Um, and there is this very, very large and very live debate happening. So I think that you know this conversation is very helpful because it helps us understand what is the 14th mm -hmm. Amendment in a you know, fairly technical way. But at the end of the day, if we walk out of the door, out this door and start talking about you know, the importance of birthright citizenship in terms of protecting the 14th Amendment, normal people are going to look at us like we're crazy. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, so I think that our bigger challenge here is to be able to take these very important bedrock principles of our nation and help the American public understand why they are bedrock mm -hmm. principles. No. Um, do we want to have you know, children born in the United States that have no country? That's right. And keep in mind that you know, in 2014 was the first time uh, in our nation's history when uh, primary elementary school age children are majority children of color. Mm -hmm. you know, soon, I want to say the next five, six years, it'll be all the way up to, to um, senior year in high school. And I'm not saying they're all immigrants, but the country is getting more diverse. Mm -hmm. So all these things are wound up. And that, you know, yes, the legal piece is incredibly important, but it is the engagement of the public debate on the, the bedrock principles of, of the nation that are almost more important. Yeah. Well, let me quickly just say about that, that people in this room who want to understand why that's important should read Martha's book, which is the account of what it was like to live in a country before this, where we had large population of people you know, slaves and, you know, so-called free blacks who s weren't really clearly people under the law and how does a political system operate with it? So really interesting picture of that and that's the problem the 14th Amendment was designed to solve. And certainly we're talking, when we're talking about the politics, Mitchell, when it came mm. to getting a formal apology mm. from mm. the federal government and getting restitution, reparations for Japanese Americans interned, um, that was not an act from a court. That was from political mm -hmm. lobbying, and it took right. 10 years to get there. Well, it took actually much longer than 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say it started the day the camps were closed until 40 years later, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 was passed. And next, as you alluded to, next Friday is the 30th anniversary of the date that President Ronald Reagan signed that piece of legislation. And it was a piece of legislation that truly was bipartisan in, in effort. On September 17, 1987, it passes the House of Representatives. 243 U.S. representatives voted for that bill. 180 of them were Democrats, 63 of them were Republicans. Truly a bipartisan effort, and not, I don't think that would have happened in our Congress today. No. You know, um, well, I, I'm being facetious, but <laughs> we can't even get a budget bill, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then seven months later, it goes to the Senate, where Senator Matsunaga had lined up 70 co-sponsors. So at that point, we just needed one more supporter, which was Ronald Reagan. And I, I remember thinking back then, there is no way that Ronald Reagan, the great conservative president, is going to sign this bill. 
but the true believers pushed on. And the, the truth about Ronald Reagan, whether you agreed with his policies or not, was that many people would agree he was a great communicator. If you could tell him a story that he would understand and would touch his heart, you would have a great advocate on your hands. So the, the question is, what story could we tell Ronald Reagan in 1988 that would help him understand all the things that we're talking about right, today? Right, because right. Mm -hmm. everything we're talking about today happened in the 1940s, and we were arguing about it in the 1980s. Well, back in World War II, there was a young sergeant named Kazuo Masuda. He was a Japanese-American soldier fighting for the United States. And people asked him, why are you doing this? Why are you fighting for the United States of America when your own family is imprisoned behind barbed wire? And his response was, because this is the only way that I know that my family can have a chance in America. Right or wrong, agree with him or not, Sergeant Masuda and all the Japanese-American soldiers of World War II understood that in 1943, 1944, and 1945, loyalty needed to be demonstrated in blood. Well, two weeks after he gave that interview, Sergeant Masuda was killed in battle, fighting for our nation. After the war, his family moves back to Santa Ana, California, and they want to bury their son in the local cemetery, but all they're met with mm. is threats from the local community. Get out of town, you're not welcome here, you know, move away, we don't want your kind. The army realizes that this is a PR fiasco, so they have a contingent of army officers go to Santa Ana, California for a medal ceremony. Mm. And there was a young white American captain that evening named Ronald Reagan. Oh. Mm. And he spoke to the audience and he said, the blood that is soaked into the sands is all of one color. America stands unique in the world the only country not founded on race, but on, on, on an ideal. Mr. and Mrs. Masuda, as one member of the American family to another, for what your son Kazuo did, thanks. Now, President Reagan didn't write those words, <laughs> but he read them with great feeling yeah. because he was a great actor. But that story was wow. relayed to President Reagan in 1988, and his response was, I remember that family, and I remember what those soldiers did for America. Mm -hmm. And that gave him the anecdote to begin yeah. to talk about this and then eventually to sign the Civil Liberties Act uh, on August 10th, 1988. And so that speaks exactly mm -hmm. to what you're yeah. talking about, Ali, is how do we put this into stories right. that average Americans can get their hands around, can embrace and say, this is our, our true essence as Americans, mm -hmm. This is where our higher angels live. And I mean, you kind of, in this moment where you have DACA recipients, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, looking to enlist in the Army uh, through the MAVNI program, which in essence is a program that uh, recruits individuals with special skills, um, usually you know, foreign language or otherwise, where you have the administration blocking their enlistment. Uh, uh, it's just a, it's a very clear indication of this administration's approach to immigration and kind of, quite frankly, the value that, that the community brings, whether it's to the business on the corner or, you know, the soldier on the field. So is that where your energies are focused then on the political and not necessarily the courts or in a legal uh, mm -hmm. avenue, given the current makeup of the Supreme Court and given the fact that President Trump has been able to get more judges on the federal bench than any other president at this time in his presidency. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them are pretty young, and I'm assuming most of them 
have pretty uh, strict constructionist views of the Constitution. So for us as an organization at the, at the National Immigration Forum, we don't do legal services. And we don't, we don't, we're not litigators. You know, I just play one on TV. Um, <laughs> so I have to give an incredible amount of credit to organizations like the National Immigration Law Center, uh, Asian, American, uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, uh, ACLU. I mean, there are uh, legal experts just waging an incredible fight in courts across the country to block what the administration is doing. And that's, like Martha was saying, that's one part of this debate. The other part of this debate is helping the American public understand what is happening. Um, so for us, we really try to work in conservative, politically and socially conservative and moderate parts of the country. And you know, how do we have a conversation with the person who voted for Donald Trump uh, and help them understand, okay, why is immigration important? And it's, it's interesting because um, yesterday there was an article in the Associated Press about Elkhart County, Indiana. Elkhart County was slated to be home to one of the uh, newest and largest immigrant detention facilities. Um, the business, and in Elkhart County, four out, of the five, four out of five RVs are produced, are manufactured. Um, it's a really interesting article because it shows how the business community in Elkhart, in Elkhart County came together and said, you know what, if this happens in our community, our workforce and our immigrant neighbors will leave. The faith community, the Mennonite community in particular, uh, was also very active. But the best part about the article was a quote at the end of the, the piece. And um, I don't remember his name, uh, but he says, I'm a Trump voter, but I like my immigrant neighbors. And I don't want them to be afraid to live in, my or in our community. And you know what? There are going to be moments where I'm just going to disagree with my president. So in this really awful, heated political battle, um, there are people who want a different way, who are politically and socially conservative. So for us as an organization, that's where we try to uh, focus our time. And just real quickly, I want to say we, we shouldn't, I mean, Trump is appointing these judges. We, we shouldn't assume anything about their views on questions like citizenship. One of the, one of the most conservative judges currently been placed on the Courts of Appeals, uh, Judge Jim Ho of, yeah. the, of the Fifth Circuit, uh, and his name is Ho, just, just to put that out there. <laughs> but he is extraordinarily conservative, but I was on a, a panel with him about birthright citizenship shortly before he was appointed, and you know somebody said, well, what do you think of this argument? He says, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Talk about fuzzy-headed living constitutionalism. Who made this argument up, right? It's clear. And, you know, so that, that being a conservative in this country doesn't mean that you think that, that the government can do whatever it wants to immigrants. And, and the courts will still be possible recipients of, of good arguments for equal rights if they're framed properly. And how do you see the court should... Kavanaugh be seated, mm -hmm. which is likely. How do you see it ruling on these issues going forward? Martha. Boy, if I had that crystal ball. Um, which is to say that, I, but I'm sympathetic to this point of view, which is that um, I take my lessons from the past. Mm -hmm. But in the 19th century, even prior to the 14th Amendment, there are high courts that look at former slaves and are, some would try and convince them, right, that former slaves should have no rights. And 
these are not racial egalitarians. These are not budding civil rights thinkers in the 19th century. These are conservative, many of them slaveholders, who say, wait a minute. We understand that slaves not, might not be, former slaves might, be, might not be equal citizens, but we cannot create tens of thousands of outlaws right. in our midst, right? These are workers, um, these are neighbors, these are members of communities, mm -hmm. and we cannot, as a court, in one fell swoop, exclude them from the ordinary structures of our social order, right? And so even a conservative slaveholding jurist in the 19th century understands that there is an interest, right, in finding ways to mm -hmm. incorporate people um, into the nation, into its structures, into its social order, into the body politic. Mm -hmm. Maybe all you really want to do is extract their labor. Mm. Um, maybe really all you want to do is to uh, maintain a social order, but that becomes the opening, right, through which then former slaves make the full-throated mm. argument about their rights as citizens. Um, and they persist. Right? We use that word a lot these days, right? <laughs> but they persist um, until the climate changes. And that's part of the burden, I think, that we bear today mm -hmm. is to stay true to our views, right. to continue to make those arguments, even in the face of a court that appears to be um, perhaps leaning um, in another direction or reluctant. Um, that's why the battle you described takes decades, right, and not simply years, um, and that there always are in these stories the folks who um, persist in making those arguments, refining them, building allies, and waiting. You know, in the 19th century, it's a tragic story because it is a story of civil war. Right. Um, it is a story that nearly wrenches the, the nation irreparably. We hope that's not the story in the 21st century, um, but it is a story about um, refining arguments, making arguments, being persistent until the circumstances shift. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that's partly where yeah. we are. Yeah. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume too much about the new justices. I mean, I think that getting Gorsuch in the place of Justice Scalia actually was probably a slight advance for the cause yeah. of immigrants' rights. Gorsuch's lower court jurisprudence has shown some skepticism about executive claims of the ability to, to, to expel people, much more than Scalia ever did. Kavanaugh, I don't know about. I, 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 I will say this, and it, it bothers me, that not since 1924, uh, I think, no, 1921, when President Harding nominated former President Taft as Chief Justice, have we had a nominee to the high court who is more completely a creature of the executive branch, who is more completely mm -hmm. an advocate of unlimited power for the executive than Kavanaugh? And I think in that sense, his uh, accession instead of Kennedy is, is ominous. Um, but I do think that we shouldn't give up the idea of educating the courts through the lower courts. It, it will take some creative and intelligent litigation, uh, and we can't assume that the courts are our allies, but we shouldn't assume they're our enemies either. Hi, everyone. I'm Luis Vasquez from Redondo Beach, thanks to Socolo. My question is regarding the uh, kids in the border. What, if any, laws is Trump, Homeland Security, ice breaking? Uh, according to NPR, kids are being drugged. 
They are physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused, sleeping on the floors. Uh, I understand, uh, excuse me, 40 kids uh, are not being returned to their parents. Are they breaking laws? They are certainly interpreting laws uh, in a very awful way. Let me put it that way. Um, you know, the, the, the court cases that are being filed in terms of, uh, for example, there was a court decision probably sometime this evening of whether or not to stay the deportation of families that have been reunited until they can really pro pursue their asylum claims. We'll probably be, there, we'll probably see a de decision before the end of the night. So this is all under active debate. Um, you know, the administration will argue that they are interpreting immigration law and the enforcement of immigration law uh, to the letter of, of, of the way that these were written. Under the Obama administration uh, and even previous administrations, you saw a greater amount of discretion on the part of immigration enforcement to prioritize public safety threats. The administration has eliminated any sort of, of discretion. So. From our perspective, it's an open debate on whether or not the administration has violated any immigration laws. They have certainly, I think, violated the rights, the civil rights of many of these communities. Um, and the abuses that we're reading about in the, in the court cases um, that are moving are, are stunning, are shocking. Um, but I, I think it's very much an open debate and we'll see how this, how this plays out. So my question has to do with uh with, with the news, uh, so there's, there's no debate that there is a huge divide between what's happening in politics and what America, the American public is interpreting. So um, there's been a lot of discussion as to interpreting constitutional law and how we, as the American public, are supposed to educate ourselves with the, um, with the media really being demonized today and a lot of the American public having a lot of distrust with the media because of what the current administration has been saying, where do we go from this point on? Part of what I take from your question is that um, a, this strong sense that we're in a moment where um, we have to educate ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, that um, a very noisy, um, very fraught uh, media landscape means um, we have to ferret out those sources, those institutions, um, that we trust. Can I plug? Yes. So I'm going to recommend, for example, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, right, is one of those places to which I think we can go with confidence to understand some of these fundamental questions and to um, tap into experts like Garrett and others um, who are um, making their ideas available through these kinds of outlets. But um, my sense in this conversation, for example, about the 14th Amendment, when as we go out to talk about it, is how many Americans aren't aware right, of what the origins of that story is, that it was um, birthright citizenship um, came into being in this country um, to settle um, the fraught um, and profound circumstances of former slaves. Right? It wasn't some afterthought. It wasn't some easy um, way to get at the question of citizenship. It was intended to um, restore a kind of justice right, to people who had been so long uh, deprived of justice under the law and the Constitution. Well, that's a history we need to remember before we dive into a debate about the law and the policy today. I think we have to appreciate that birthright citizenship is the thing that 
um, deprives the United States from discriminating among and between us. Religion, national origin, political party, all those things might be the arbiters of citizenship, but they're not in this country. So I think that it is incumbent upon us to find those places where we can do this. I'm so grateful to Zocalo for um, recording this and making it available. Can I, uh, one, one piece on this. Um, so we've kind of realized that there's just a parallel media universe, right? <laughs> There is, you know, and it's not just even MSNBC and Fox, mm. right? There is local television, there's local papers, there are religious press. Um, so what we're finding on these issues of the travel ban, of family separation on the border, is when a trusted messenger, like mm. James Ho, is talking about the 14th Amendment in conservative press, that audience says, you know what? That's a conservative outlet, I trust, he's a conservative, I'm going to go with that. And what he's saying is not fundamentally different from what we're saying. So I also think that there's a, um, you know, we have a tendency to think that, okay, Fox News is driving the entirety of the debate. It's three million odd people who watch cable news every day. It's actually not that big of a number. Mm. When you look at religious press, local press, that's actually a much more significant slice mm. of the American public. And, you know, I think that's where we have to create the, have the, uh, deploy the creative strategies to reach people through those outlets. Well, I, I, I think that, if citizens arm themselves with some knowledge and some history, right? If they, if they understand why the 14th, as you say, why the 14th Amendment is the way it is, what the history it came, why it's important to the way we live now, and engage civil society institutions, your, your faith communities, right? Uh, and, and really get religious discussion going among denominations uh, and saying, you know, this, this, this is what things really are. You're kind of short-circuiting, you don't, you don't have to run yeah. everything through Bill O'Reilly. And, and, but that has to do with citizens, yep. you know, assembling knowledge and, and understanding uh, on their own. And it, it's, it, it's daunting, I mean, it, it, it's hard to, but, but it's out there. Um, and uh, it, it's something that we're gonna have to take responsibility. If we don't make use of the ideas behind our uh, Constitution now, we will lose it. I'd like to ask the panel to talk about the U.S. Census and there is a proposal by the Trump administration to include for the first times in decades a question about citizenship status on the U.S. Census. It has not been getting as much attention but I personally believe there's a lot at stake mm -hmm. particularly with regard to your discussion about the 14th Amendment and mm -hmm. the distribution of power between the states. So I'd like to ask the yeah. panel to talk about that. Well, I mean, as a constitutional lawyer, it, it, you start with the census clause, which says that the purpose of the census is to determine the respective numbers of the states, by which they mean how many people live in the states, not how many citizens, right? Because citizenship was very contested in 1787, but how many people live in the states. And you know, the idea of putting a citizenship question uh, on, uh, in the, the questionnaire, uh, everyone under, uh, no one challenges that that's gonna reduce the accuracy of the count, because people are not gonna return their questionnaires. They're gonna be afraid they'll be picked up. So I think it is uh, grievously wrong as a matter of constitutional law to think that's an appropriate use of the census clause. There's some possibility that the courts will vindicate that. The, the administration has had some fairly embarrassing setbacks 
in the current litigation because they went in and said, here's the reason why we did this. And the other side says, well, then why do Secretary Ross's emails say precisely the opposite? We happen to have them here. And that was not a good moment for the Sessions Justice Department, but we don't know what's going to happen. But I do think political noise about this mm -hmm. uh, and faith communities and other or institutions saying, look, don't don't make the sense, don't break the census. We need that information. Uh, would really be something that people could devote some attention to. Garrett, you had been, you mentioned really briefly the acceleration of constitutional mm. interpretive change, right. and I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, we all know about Roe v. Wade's getting a lot of press, but, but what other issues do you see in play? I think if you want a case study, Take a look at the role of public employee unions under the First Amendment. I, you know, since the time that I began covering the Supreme Court, which is not that long ago, since to, in 2010, the law of public employee unions and their ability to to contract uh, for to collect fees from from members of the bargaining unit in order to support bargaining was absolutely fixed. There was no question about this precedent. The Supreme Court had reaffirmed it five times. And in 2011, Justice Alito says, you know what, I think we ought to just scrap all that because I don't like public employee unions. <laughs> and this year, the Supreme Court did, and it, it said, from now on, that, that 40 years of precedent is out the window because we don't like public employee unions. And that kind of change, that rapid change, that, that, that sense on the part of this conservative legal movement that we have the votes now, we don't want to wait. Uh, I think it, you're going to see it accelerate in the next few terms of court as they bring cases about affirmative action, as they bring cases about abortion, as they bring cases about contraception. You will see claims made in these courts that would not have, would have been laughed, literally laughed out of court five years ago. So, you know, it's, we're just at the beginning of it. But take a look at that, that case, the Janus case, as a case study. Michael Alexander from Northeast LA. Uh, the, a follow-up question on the census. Obviously, the question about immigrant status is a political mm. insertion, but the state of Alabama is reported to be filing suit to deny count of immigrants. And I'm mm. wondering if there's anything in the Constitution that you know of that would make that uh, Invalid, so that the so immigrants, non-immigrants would be. I guess it's it's uh, undocumented immigrants that they want to mm -hmm. deny to be counted during the census. Well, there are some states that want to not count anyone but citizens for the purposes of of apportioning their yeah. their districts. And the answer to that is, as far as a matter of positive law, it's an unsettled question. The Supreme Court looked at it three years ago and said, "We're not going to settle it right now." Uh, the state of Texas had asked. Uh, the court to rule that that only citizens could be counted, and the court said, "No, you know, where, where, where are you getting? That's crazy." But but we're not saying a state couldn't choose to only count citizens. We'll get to that later. So that's still floating around. And I would say just a political question, a political uh, bit on the the census question. I mean, the Trump administration has uh, wants to include a citizenship question in order to hurt California. Right. Right. Yes. Um, in reality, I I would argue they're going to hurt places like Nebraska, because Nebraska in the Southeast, the Midwest, those are the cities and towns where we're seeing the fastest growth in the foreign-born population. 
Those mayors, those city councilors are depending on a clean census count in order to apportion federal dollars. So I feel like the, there's a political case to be made among conservative Americans that, you know what, a clean census count, a full census count is good for conservative America. And actually, it's actually much better for conservative America than California. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, and we haven't been able to clearly, clearly kind of move that message, but I just think if, if you know, small town Republican mayors and city councilors to, to really see the consequences of a bad census on their bottom line, we could be having a different discussion. Hi, I'm Rick Noguchi. I'm with the Japanese American National Museum. And I have a shameless plug disguised as a question for Mitch Maki. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the signing of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 means today, and if you could give any insights into the display that you're working on for the museum. <laughs> well done. Well done. You didn't even have to say that was shameless. Yeah. <laughs> what, what Rick is uh, alluding to is at the Japanese American National Museum, there's an exhibit called Common Ground that talks about the common ground that all immigrants share in the United States, but t told through the experience of Japanese Americans. We've just changed the end of that exhibit so that it would highlight the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, and that's going to open this Saturday. And we hope that all of you can come and uh, enjoy the exhibit. And at Go For Broke National uh, Education Center, which is in this building, we'll have a complimentary exhibit which talks about the role of the veterans in passing this landmark legislation. And, and, it, yeah, and, and we have all the trustees here <laughs> speaking in my ear, even though I am not their employee. Right? <laughs> I, I, I empathize with you, Anne. But no, we will have the actual document here uh, at the Japanese American National Museum. And the pen. And the pen, the pen. Uh, that, that we use to sign it. But in answer to your question, I, I think for many of us, we believe that the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 represents a moment in our country's history where our nation had the strength and the fortitude to look back and apologize and in a measured way atone for that egregious violation of the Constitution. It's scary to hear us talk today because we could be having the same conversation 75 years ago, mm. and yet we're having it today. If we're not repeating history, we're simply surely rhyming with history yes. of 75 years ago. And it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we don't repeat what happened again so that there doesn't have to be a Civil Liberties Act of 2028 or something along that line. You know, uh, it's been said that in times of war, the laws fall silent. And I think those are very chilling words that we, call, we can all take to heart. And if we can all make that commitment here tonight, that whether in times of war or in times of peace, we will not let the laws fall silent, and in particular, the 14th Amendment. So thank you. Fabulous words to end on. Before we close, before we close, I'd like to thank the Daniel K. Inouye Institute, as well as the Japanese American National Museum for having us here tonight and make this program uh, possible. So big round of applause for them, please.
Also, thank you to all of you for coming tonight. We're so happy to see you. And please, the party's not over yet. Please join us outside in the lobby for the reception with our featured guests. And speaking of our featured guests, let's give them a big final round of applause. Thank you so much.